Right. Well, hello and welcome to Political Unmuted. It's the Socialist Think Tank podcast. And uh, you might not have seen me before. I'm a guest host. My name's Abla Kandla. Right. I'm well, really pleased to be here. Um, probably shouldn't mute this. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you very much, team, for having me to chat about this week's top picks. I am a journalist, a film programmer, uh, jack of all trades. I'd like to think master of all of them as well. Uh, interpreter, <laughs> now script consultant. I am not, however, a filmmaker. I should probably <laughs> that. I wish I was. I work with a lot of filmmakers and love cinema. Thank you very much, Socialist Think Tank, for having me. And um, welcome, everyone, as well. So this, we're going to start with moment of the week. Yeah, from... we, we get we get this beautiful jingle now. So um, you ready? Here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. Who wants to start? How about you, Paul? What's your moment of the week? Okay, um, so my moment of the week is, I don't normally do a personal one. I normally do a really big one, but I'm going to do a personal one. Um, so I was elected this week as the secretary of the North Branch of the Socialist Educational Association and the National Executive Delegate as well. So i uh, really pleased about that because um, some, of the, some of the only people really to be putting the anti-academization agenda uh out publicly so yeah they're, they're a good organization they're one of the labor party affiliates um and yeah they, they're actually the only ones talking about structural change at the moment because even the unions have kind of backed away from talking about structural change because they're terrified that if they say we get rid of academies then people are like but i work in an academy where's my job your job will still still be there the, the school will just be under local authority control so there's um but people don't really tend to understand that. So, yeah, we're trying to go for structural change because of the damage academies are causing. So I was, uh, yeah, really quite honoured to be elected and trusted to do that again. That's amazing. Do you, by any chance, work or collaborate with the Anti-Academy Alliance? Anti-Academy Alliance? Uh, a little bit. We will We will work with some other groups. Um, and there's all sorts. Like uh, there's, a, there's a Zero Exclusions group that we've worked with, which, again, people think is a really controversial thing. But it, it's only... It's only controversial if you think, well, zero zero exclusions would mean we'd always find you an alternate provision. So sometimes it, it just doesn't work for someone at a school and they may need to go to another school. But in the moment in the academy system, they're going to from that school to nowhere. There's no obligation for anywhere for them to be other than a local authority has an obligation to find them somewhere. But a local authority has no power because it has no schools. So yeah, where that's they're the biggest go. problem is that they're not accountable. Yeah, um, exactly. Issue quite that I feel quite strongly about. So I'm really glad to hear that. Just one quick question for, for you: Is there a way back from academization of schools? I, I think so, but it would involve a really elaborate thing. Um, for me, I would, I would be looking at trying to make it 
so that um, local authority schools or schools that are under democratic control got something for free that academies didn't because it's all about money, basically. Um, and we know that academies, some of them are paying their CEOs some just vast amounts of money and they're spending so much money in, on supply agencies and things like that and all, all the money's disappearing away from the children. So we really need some democratic control back. I do think that would be the way to do it. So you would have to do that through an examination system and you'd have to say, right, okay, they're the resources for the exam um, and completely reform the exam system as well, by the way. But as part of it, you could say, well, they're the, they're the resources. This isn't an SEA policy, by the way, this is mine. And then... Um, and then if you made it free, if you were under democratic control of a local authority and charged academies for that for that same resource, I think you would find that the position would be that they would have to move back there and they would have to hand over their leases and all the properties they gave. But a lot of damage has been done there. They've, they've made a lot of money. And I know certain academies have secret bank accounts and all sorts of things. It's, uh, it's quite a, um, a worrying situation. Thank you very much for that, Paul, and congratulations. Good news. Thanks. <laughs> uh, Stuart, how about you? Moment of the week. Oh, uh, mine's dead easy, and I'll keep it short. I had the, the incredible pleasure of being out campaigning in a place called Ferry Hill alongside Jamie Driscoll, who came out to support the candidate that they have, a lad called Curtis. And what a deeply compelling guy Jamie Driscoll is. I mean, on the doorstep, people were you know, telling them, telling them, you know, these really deep and personal things to him. You know, everybody's feeling a bit of pain and, hurt and certainly uh, poverty and food insecurity and energy insecurity is a big issue. And he just soaked that in and he, he, he you know, he cared and people recognised that quite quickly, I think, and were very open, open to him. Such a compelling guy. We, we just need, you know, a thousand more of them. Yeah, fair enough. Getting some love in the comments there. Jamie is brilliant, says Laura. <laughs> so, uh, Samantha, how about you? Moments of the week. Yeah, I've had, no, I've had a very eventful week because I've been stuck in with COVID, which is a total pain in the ass. but I am well. I'm not going to liberate. Uh, what I should have been doing at the end of last week was recording um, some songs for an album about my town, which I'm very excited about. So um, unfortunately, I do not feature on the album because I wasn't allowed out of the house. But when it does come out, I'll make sure everybody uh, gets to hear. We, we've managed to write some really quite good uh, sort of folk songs about my town and its history and heritage. Um, we were a key mover in the uh, advent of um, the steam train, steam uh, passenger rail. Um, so we've managed to get some funding to record the songs. So yeah, I'm very excited about seeing what comes out of it, even though I wasn't on it. But that's definitely the moment that should have been my moment of the week. <laughs> when you say you weren't on it, you mean you didn't sing on it, but you wrote some of the songs? Yeah, so we had sort of like community, um, song writing workshops led by professionals and then they, they took some of the things that we put together away and, and put them into properly good songs um and then we worked on how to perform them together so um you know I, I, I fed into that you know how how we should organize it and 
um, how, how everything should be laid out. So yeah, it's really sad that my actual voice isn't going to be on there, but I can sing every one of those songs. <laughs> you can sing it live. You might do a yes, tour. Um, and I'm sure I will. <laughs> so where, where can we buy the album? Yes, so they're all they're all the the raw tracks have been taken away, um, and I believe the finished article will be out in April. So I'll make sure everybody knows all about it when it's ready. Okay, we'll keep an eye out. I have to yeah. post some links. Thank you very much, Jane. I'm going top to bottom um, on my screen. <laughs> so last but not least, Jane, how was your? What's your moment of the week? Oh, thanks, Abla. Um. So my moment of the week, it was kind of sad, but really interesting, I thought. So I um, I listened to um, this podcast, well, this video um, podcast about memorials. So it's the oldest human rights charity in Russia. Um, not very old, as you can imagine, but the oldest one they have is about 75 years old. And it's just been outlawed last year because they received some foreign funding, I think, from Germany. So they should put on all anything they put out in Russia, foreign agents in big letters, according to new laws that come in the last few years. Um, so they've been outlawed and I was listening to some people talking about that and it was um, basically they represent, um, they, they're a memorial for all the victims of the authoritarian regime that's, that was in the Soviet Union. And they said, you know, there are some people, they've only got one photograph of their, you know, the loved one who, you know, suffered awful things and died and um, they didn't trust it to memorial because they know that they'll, you know, use it to build a memory and um so i thought it's really sad that they're being they're trying to close them down but they're not just they're active um in other countries in europe um so it was really fascinating um, and they said one of the things we can do to try and support them um is learn russian because it's really hard for them to get stuff outside of russia because of the language barrier because it's not a language that's very widely spoken so um and i used to learn russian years ago so i thought to learn it again so i can try and do some translating for them how did you come across it um well oh sorry this is it's dull but it's not dull for me <laughs> it's very dull for everyone else so one of my favorite authors is Heinrich Bohr. he was a german author wrote so many good books and there's a Heinrich Bohr institute um, and they put out lectures and it was one of theirs. All right, okay, brilliant. Um, can people find a link somewhere? Well, it or no, vanished is it under the radar. This morning, weirdly, completely vanished. So I don't know if there's gremlins in the system, but um, if I can find it again, I will paste it on um, the Socialist Think Tank Southeast page for people to watch. Lovely, well, thank you very much. So that's everyone's moment of the week. Does anyone have anything to add before we move on to our stories? No, all good. All right, well, the big story. Now it's time for the big story. So this week, the big story is basically the lifting of uh, COVID restrictions and everything that goes along with it. So um, unions condemning the lifting of restrictions without mitigation in place. Um, I'm thinking mainly of school union, of uh, education unions who just don't have the resources and the logistics to deal with an increasing amount of pupils and teachers catching, potentially catching COVID, being off sick, um, essentially, and I'm, I'm going to come back to this, but the, the, the essential problem is 
there aren't enough staff. <laughs> it's the same problem in hospitals. It's not so much, I would argue, it's not so much um, the, the fact that people are catching COVID, the numbers aren't huge. It's the fact that there just aren't enough uh, teachers, there aren't enough uh, medical staff. And that's been an ongoing problem, which is now massively exacerbated. So that really is the root cause that should be looked at. Um, in relation to the lifting of uh, the restrictions, I'd also like to chat about the um, various measures that kind of are going along with it, which is one of which is uh, the end to the sick pay. So you could get sick pay if you had COVID from day one of being off sick, and now that's going to be stopped. And already sick pay is really like it's a po it's poverty sick pay in Britain. It's it's nothing. It's like ninety pounds a week. So I can't see the incentive of anyone not working and staying at home if they have COVID. People are really forced into work at this rate. And um, the last thing is the end of the well, the tapering. Uh, of the free tests, COVID tests in April. So again, everything's being done to really put people off testing, <laughs> off isolating, and there's nothing there to not only support them, but support the system, the institutions from which they'll be missing. So I'm thinking, again, in, mostly in terms of education and hospitals. So um, what do you make of, uh, of these? Uh, I can see the case for lifting these restrictions in a vacuum everyone is quite keen for that to happen because of how hindering some of them have been but obviously there there's there are very important systemic consequences to this um so how about you Stuart what do you make of this oh, oh I mean the thing that gets to me is that people that I know are, are scared of another wave of COVID coming another strain, another variant. And the thing that we really should be scared of is another another variant and Boris Johnson being in charge at the same time. That's the really dangerous thing. Certainly, you know, as a, as a from a union perspective, in my union, uh, Unite Community membership, the thing that worries me is we should have, by this point, we should have been taking on sick pay. Sick pay is really poverty sick pay, but only if you make enough money. There's absolutely no obligation uh, for an employer to pay any sick pay if you don't reach a threshold, which most low, low uh, earners don't. It, there's absolutely zero support there, whether you broke your ankle or you get COVID. That should have been addressed by now. It, it, it hasn't. Uh, and if anything, it, the kind of public conscience has kind of changed with COVID. I think people are more willing to go to work with much more serious uh, illnesses, mm -hmm. uh, coughs, colds, things that would have kept people off originally. People will go to work with them because they go, well, at least it's not COVID. And now everybody will go to work with these very serious illnesses uh at times they'll go to work put extra pressure on we will have more deaths at work as people uh strain themselves you know we'll see an increase in you know the common cold coughs viruses like that just spreading 
because the way that people treat them has changed. We, we, we behave incredibly different to how we did in 2019. And that, that needs to be addressed really quickly in the workplace. Yeah, no, agreed. I can see the case for people being fed up with various restrictions, but we've not addressed any of the fundamental causes of, of COVID and the consequences of COVID. So um, comments coming in, the way sick pay gets shot down is because the self-employed don't get sick pay. It's true, Mike, Mark Longley. Um, Kerry Walk saying it's a joke. Um, and yeah, that's true. I'm self-employed myself, so <laughs> I, I know all too well. Um, so yeah, when people when Johnson tells people like me to take personal responsibility, he has made it impossible for me to mm. do so. So thank you very much for those comments, uh, Paul. What do you make of uh, lifting those restrictions? So I, I work in a school, and obviously. Um my experiences are very, very different as someone who's been able to self-isolate throughout. And I don't really like that division in society. I don't really like the way that's divided us up into, but what I have seen is there is a real difference in behavior. Um, and I think those of us who were forced out, who were, who were called key workers uh, when it suited, and uh, we were called out and we were told, you've just got to go, you've just got to go, you're a key worker. That's it. And I was sort of in the second wave of that. So the, my, my school was relatively close. We were a special and educational needs school. So we were open the entire time, but in a more limited way until like, until things. Are, but people who were out collecting bins and things like that, they, they were out the entire time. People who worked in shops, they were out the entire time. And we have a very, the people who are out for a lot of this have a very different attitude to people who were able to be uh, isolated for you know look so um we we've got a lot of people in in education people in sort of managerial positions who've managed to isolate themselves entirely and they'll be going around um telling people off for not wearing a mask and things like that whereas we we just would be wide-eyed and shocked at that because we're getting people coughing in our faces or we're getting spat at or we're getting all, all these things that can happen to us in the workplace and we're like a mask's not going to a little bit of cloth on your face really isn't going to change our our the way that our chances of getting covid our chances of spreading it to our family that really isn't and so there's this huge divide i honestly think the end of restrictions makes absolutely no difference to me other than i'm now allowed to have fun and throughout the entire pandemic i wasn't allowed to have fun but i had to go into a place where this was flying around, you were likely to get it. And every single one of my colleagues caught COVID early. Most of us are on our second or third time of having caught it. And that's because of the nature of our jobs, because because we're in there. There were things they could have done. They could have reduced class sizes. They could have opened up more buildings. But the problem with that is they would have seen better educational outcomes and it would have cost more. And it would have it would have been a lot cheaper than the test track and trace, of course, that they that they put into place because that wasn't really test track and trace. That was um, a bung to their um, to their donors. But um, they could have spent that money on you know more staff in schools, you know. But that would have been that would have created long term outcomes. So the, everything everything about this has been political, and I think we have to understand that Boris Johnson's made a political decision this week when he's under pressure. 
um, within the Tory party where you've got a policy that's relatively unpopular with the public um, and getting rid of all restrictions, but popular within his backbenchers. He's trying to save himself from that. Now, I'm not saying that restrictions have go. shouldn't go. I think, actually, restrictions have never really been in, in, a, in a meaningful way. Um, I don't think the restriction. I think the restrictions were simply damaging. So, for example, they kept pubs open and did um, and did eat out to help out, but gyms were shut at that time. And gyms were actively like you know, if you're fit, you had more more chance of surviving COVID. So the idea of eat out to help out while gyms were shut was utterly utterly bizarre. And you can see the damage that they've done at every stage, and the damage that they've done to businesses, the damages they've done to people's health and mental health, and all these things. They've made the wrong decision at every turn. Um, I don't know whether this is a right or a wrong decision, but for me, it doesn't make any personal difference because I would have to be in the situation anyway. Yeah. So the debate really we should be having, it, it's it's kind of a distraction really. It's not about pitting uh, one side against the other in terms of just purely lifting restrictions because you're right ultimately so many people are suffering from things that aren't those restrictions and aren't exactly to do with catching covid or not um nothing has been put in place to support people living um good safe lives and that's i think the you're right i mean my first reaction genuinely was what what restrictions were still in place for them to be lifted i i had yeah, no yeah. idea there was anything there um because i still i mean i'm self employed still had to work. i i lost some work of course and that's nothing uh, in comparison with yeah with people that work on the front lines that have uh, jobs that they just couldn't give up and they couldn't do remotely um, so essentially you're right you're just limiting the amount of leisure time and um, activities that they can do to <laughs> to to cope to make <laughs> their lives a little bit better so we've not addressed the teacher shortages we've not addressed um, you know the fact that maternity services are cut to the bone that so many midwives have, have either gone on strike or resigned completely um, so at every level, we're being affected in ways that could have been prevented and have nothing to do with restrictions themselves. Um, so, yeah, fair point. Uh, Samantha, how about you? What's um, what's your take on um, on this news? Oh, was that me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, the thing the thing is um if, if we're not gonna uh require people to self-isolate when they've tested positive for covid then people who have tested positive for covid won't be uh, enabled to make ethical choices about who they're exposing to covid and i understand i mean like i just said i've, I've just had covid it wasn't a huge problem for me i've definitely been out and about in the world with with worse colds and mild flus because you just got on with your life but i would hate to think that i had just gone about my life and exposed somebody who then became extremely ill and i would hate to think that somebody was coming to do work in my nana's house knowing that they've got covid 
but they can't afford to take the day off work um, or the week off work or however long, you know. So I think there's definitely a balancing act. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been very few real restrictions in place for a long time. There's very few, a lot of places you're supposed to wear a mask, people don't even bother, you know, fair enough. But I just think, especially for people who are clinically extremely vulnerable and who are terrified and who've worked very hard for the last two years to keep themselves safe, um, the fact that they could be riding a bus next to somebody who's tested positive for COVID that morning and that person wouldn't be doing anything wrong legally, I just think that's that's not good, is it? You know, I mean... Um, I think you wouldn't be able to prove it, but you know how how is that not assault? <laughs> like like knowingly uh, exposing somebody to to a potentially deadly virus. So you know, like Paul said, none of this is about the science. None of it is about what is right. The the. Neil said what happened following the science. We were following the science all the way through until it became politically um, useful for Boris Johnson to do something else. And of course, people are happy to hear the end of restrictions and they want to go back to their normal lives. I think the responsible message from a, a world leader would be to tell us there is not going to be normal lives anymore. We're always going to have to be aware of... Um, of, of the possibility of future pandemics it's going to happen again and it'll probably happen again in our lifetime because the way that we're destroying the planet and and making antibiotics useless you know that there are huge issues created by the way that we're living our lives and and we can't keep burning the world up just to keep the tv on yeah it does feel like nothing's changed in that regard um, there's been absolutely no shift in habits or anything like that. Um, that's a really good point. What it's, I find it incredibly damaging that this issue of personal responsibility has been waved about as well. It's not people, it's not individuals' responsibility to really to protect the rest of society. It's the government's not taking that responsibility and kind of dumping it on individual people and sadly people who already are struggling themselves, who need to make ends meet. It's not their fault. They need, they're doing the best they can. So to make them feel guilty that they're potentially putting someone else at risk, I find that incredibly cruel. Um, so thank you. Thanks for that. Um, Jane, how about you? What's been your experience of that? I agree. I'm really sad. This could have been a period of real reflection for us and a chance to change a lot of things about our society that are terrible, really unhealthy on a personal and a societal level. And somehow we've managed to be led sleepwalking through this by a government who just does not give a damn and is hell bent on going back to an, a normal that isn't there anymore because of this dangerous, deadly, contagious disease but they want it anyway and they're going to force us to go back into it. Um, and I, I just think the way it's been framed the whole way through, I mean, even us sitting here, even myself, my default is to say the word restriction. In my mind, what I think of those things of our protections, but we all, we all say restriction, you know, we're framed to just think of it as an inconvenience when actually it's not an inconvenience to me to know that I'm not going to inadvertently kill someone 
you know and I think just the it's done so many damaging things to our society I know I know young people you know who've had COVID and are now suffering from long COVID and it really you know they've got heart problems they've um had close shades with blood clots um it's really affecting their lives but just that's bad enough the fact that there's a society we seem to be being told to ignore that but this narrative this subconscious narrative that the clinically vulnerable are somehow different and less valuable and more dispensable that creeps in you know hearing that the prime ministers apparently said that oh it's the only the over 80s that will die you know and you I've heard people make comments that I don't think they realize how bad they sound and I don't think they really can mean them but you know but are really hurtful and upsetting to people who are vulnerable and it's just I just can't believe this is where we are after two years of this horror this is I really thought we might use this to get something positive from it and it's just gone the other direction yeah I mean given the the hoops that people with disabilities or vulnerable people have to jump through to get um, financial help or support that feels like an basically a, just a, an extra slap in the face um let's have a, have a look at the the comments am i i'm i'm not keeping quite a track of all the comments they keep coming in and i don't know how to yeah. scroll down so we, we normally down. pick those up in the in the second half as well because that we can okay. we, uh, i think samantha and i can see like we can scroll back Lovely. so if there's any that uh, pop into your head and think oh that person said this then we can scroll back but you don't have that facility sadly so ah uh, that's why <laughs> well some really good stuff coming in and um clinically vulnerable and inconvenience and that's 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 true that's the narrative that's been peddled mm-hmm. and that a lot of people kind of have integrated subconsciously which is really damaging so uh we we didn't really discuss um i don't know if anyone wants to add anything about the fact that the tests will no longer be free in what seems to be mm-hmm. like a completely unjustifiable <laughs> way there's no reason even the reason given for that so um what what do you make of this is there any rationale to making people pay for tests apart from the obvious it's political again Um, i was just going to say it's political again like boris johnson at prime minister's question time was was really might not sorry it was when they were talking about the restrictions it might not have been prime minister's question time was saying that Keir Starmer had been criticising the testing system and now he wants it to continue and because it, he, he'd been criticising because it cost too much. Well, the criticism like wasn't that it cost too much. The criticism was that it was this really terrible system that cost like <laughs> billions and billions and billions when everyone else has cost a, a much smaller amount of money. Um, it wasn't the fact that the tests were going on, but they'll just twist things... So again, it's a political thing to try and say, can we turn this around to a win? Can we turn this around to, we've just given a donor a load of money and we know that, we did that on purpose. But if we can make it look like the Labour Party wanted us to do that, then we can win this battle politically. And, and again, it's that's all it ever is. It's all about winning the next election. It's never about how, how well um, people are doing and how healthy people are and it's not for the benefit of the people, it's for the benefit of themselves and their own power. Yeah, I mean, I can't, but I can't believe that it would be 
anyone would think that's an election winner to make people start to pay for tests. They're not even trying anymore. There's been no PR around it to sell it as an idea either. It's a good thing to do, though, if you want to normalise the idea to people that they should be paying for their health care, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Gradually ushering in that kind of line of thought. Yeah, I can see that. You're right. Right. If anyone, unless anyone's got anything to add uh, about our big story, our story of the week, we can move on to our, the rest of the stories that we're going to talk about. The second one is uh, big controversial, big bonuses are back. So uh, it's been in the coming couple of weeks, big banks are going to be revealing their profits and they are, they've been skyrocketing. So uh, giants like Barclays and HSBC and Lloyds and so on are expected to announce a bumper profit hole this week. So, which obviously means massive bonuses which we'd not seen for a while, so they're back, <laughs> which is sure to anger a lot of people given uh, what we talked about, last, what you guys talked about last week, is the uh, rise in the cost of living, the rise in national insurance and the rise in, um, in gas and electricity bills. So Barclays, for, for example, are expected to make profits of about £8 billion. Uh, Barclays, who's ex-chief exec had links to Epstein, to Jeffrey Epstein, as I remember. So he's been replaced. There's someone else now at, the, at, at their head. So it feels inevitable. I mean, the banking system's still pretty much there. Nothing's changed. So I'm not... <laughs> um, reading articles, everyone's mentioning, oh, could potentially stoke anger. But will it will it do anything? What's the tipping point that people need to properly take action? Now, personally, I think in terms of Britain, at least people that have a fairly good standard of living, people that are middle class or are used to having enough money in the bank, are used to have savings. If they're hit, that's when things start to change because they have more power, basically. Um, and I feel like maybe this time round, enough wealthier people are going to be hit by this rise in the cost of living. So I don't know what you all think of that. Um, Jane, how about you? I don't know. I just feel like people aren't aware. That sounds really arrogant to say it like that, but I'm not. I had to look up the fact you know Barclays are going to make 8.1 billion forecast up from 3.1 billion in 2020 so in two years their profits are gone when you put it in contrast because I'm you know I'm thinking oh did they make 7 billion before and it's 8 billion that's huge to me but this is ridiculous to go from 3 to 8 billion and Lloyd's in 2021.2 billion forced cost to go up to 7.2 billion and the, it was only a few years ago they were putting the overdraft rates up to ridiculous amounts for people you know you need a 15% deposit for a mortgage unless you've got wealthy relatives backing you up now. Saving interest on savings accounts for those who actually can afford to save are pitiful. They're in the 0.0 percentages. And I don't know what level of greed is acceptable. I just don't know what it takes for us to get angry about this. Um, and then you've had the um, tax cut for the banks. Um, 
that's just been brought in by Rishi Sunak and I was looking into that because there, there's a bit of argument going on on social media about people kicking back saying well you know they were paying like a total of 27 um, yeah 27% tax before now they're going to be paying 28% because of the rising corporation tax so actually um, the cut that they've had has been offset by the corporation tax but the corporation tax is effective for everyone small businesses will be paying that corporation tax everyone will why have we decided the banks are, need, are the ones needing a helping hand in this situation when they're looking at these kind of bumper profits and they just seem to be getting away with it and I, I can't understand when I say they I mean the government with their crazy economic policy because you know the banks will take what they're given um but we've got these just these crazy people in charge with the most disastrous economic policy I've ever seen or could have imagined and we just don't seem to know or care no, and the reason for this uh, for th- this rise in profits is given as uh, the 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 economy doing well. So that's how that's I find that incredible that it's seen as a positive. That, that's how the economy does well. That's how it's seen. And you'd think people would think would would see the the. I, the huge gap there is between an economy that's doing well and how well they're doing. Um, no one is really profiting from, do you see what I mean? There's a massive disconnect between the country's economy, economic system and the people living in it. So, and you still hear people peddle the idea that, oh, it's good for the economy, the economy's boosted. So we get through trickle down effects or whatever we get to benefit from that and it's so clear that we don't it's the complete opposite um there's nothing that will highlight the stark contrast of that than more than the uh you know what's coming in april really the huge increase in the cost of everything uh versus um the banking system making billions so i i can't understand how it's still being justified um, Samantha, about you, what's uh, what's your take on the bonus yeah, bonanza? I mean, been... let's not let's not forget these are the same banks that are telling us that they can't afford to to run a branch in our in our town for our elder again elderly relatives, people who are disabled, people who can't travel, maybe don't have a car, maybe you can't afford to run a car because you're running three zero hours contracts and you don't know if any of them are going to phone yet on any one week so you can't afford to run a car right this is the reality of the lives that people are living and then they're having to travel 10 15 miles to the bank if they want an in-person uh banking help uh you know oh you can do it online you can do it on an app so you've got to have a smartphone and then there'll be people giving it this behind your back about the fact oh they've got a smartphone they can't be they can't be that badly done too they're obviously not that poor but you honestly need these things now to do basic things like accessing your money in a bank account because they don't have the resources apparently to run a local bank near you but they are actually getting eight billion pound in profit uh, from the way they're operating so I suggest to them they probably can afford to operate a few more uh, banks. They just don't want to because they know it's a lot cheaper to get people to use apps and websites than it is to employ people to do skilled work in our communities. So, 
yeah, it's really disappointing. Um, I hope that people look, um, as, a, as a local councillor, it's something that we often get blamed for. You know, there's no bank, there's no supermarket. What are the council doing about it? So I hope people will look at these figures and say, hmm, maybe the banks can take some responsibility. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the um, mobile phone argument reminds me of the usual one that's trotted out, which is that, well, how come the poorest people end up having a flat screen TV, ignoring the fact that ultimately it's probably one of the cheapest forms of entertainment. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Samantha. Uh, Stuart, um, oh, well, comments on the... Burning up with anger on the inside. You know, like I remember back as I was leaving school and we were bailing banks out. And we, you know, we, we bailed them out of a, a sticky situation, didn't we? As, a, as a, a group of people, we all came together and we bailed them out somehow. And now we need bailing out and they're nowhere to be seen. You know, where, all these bonuses are getting paid out. Where's the bonuses for our communities? Where's the bonuses for the kids going without breakfast and lunch and dinner? Where's the bonus for all our cut services? You know, they're not going to give it to us. We need to actually get some proper taxation going on to balance this out because uh, an, an imbalanced economy is one that, you know, is runaway, one that will never deliver the kind of life and expectations that people, you know, expect. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, I thought 2022 would have jetpacks. I didn't think it'd have to be constituting a food group to give kids breakfast. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It seems to, uh, they seem to operate on a sort of parallel economic system. It doesn't feed into the rest of society at all, mainly because no, one, no one's being taxed properly and they're all, they're all using offshore bank accounts. <laughs> Paul, how about you? Any uh, words um, to say about bonuses? Yeah, I'm going to say this is the system working as exactly as it's designed to. Um, and also it's one of those ones they they know they're laughing at us and they're saying right we can do whatever we want because they've been taking these big bonuses anyway like you know the the, the articles have been saying these bonuses have gone away but they haven't um, they've tried to disguise them with share buybacks and all sorts of different um, uh, instruments to try and pretend they weren't really getting bonuses but they were paying themselves in shares and then doing share buybacks which will boost the boost the amount of shares that um, the amount their shares go for. So they've been doing this, but now they're just being brazen and saying, yeah, we need this in cash. Bang that in my bank account because they're feeling quite relaxed. And I blame Thatcher and Reagan. This is a long process where the media and just generally society have said, you know, this trickle-down economics, it's going to work for us. And I, I noticed um, Neil was doing one of his classic sarcastic comments earlier on, um, saying that, that, you know, this is really good because it's going to trickle down. Clearly he was joking because that is not the way it works. It does, like, the, the money goes up to the top at the moment. And that's what tax is supposed to be for. So we've got a broken economy and we've had ridiculous amounts of money pumped in to the economy over the past couple of years for COVID, for all the things. But that money should have stayed in local communities if the if the economy is working well. But instead, it's gone to the bankers. It's gone to the billionaires. We've seen billionaires increase the wealth by a third over the past year. We're seeing banks like more than double in their already disgustingly huge profits 
That's the sign of an economic system that isn't working. And the shock absorber there is supposed to be taxation. So taxation is supposed to be to redistribute wealth. People, um, But we, we're living in the myth that it's uh, tax and spend rather than spend and tax. But think, of, think about this. If it was tax and spend, where was the original money from the first year they ever did it? You know, the government has to invent money in order for it to be taxed back at the end. It's a shock absorber to make sure that that money's not ending up in the wrong place. So at the moment, we need a massive wealth tax in order to take these this all the money that's been put into the economy away from these. Because wealth inequality is uh, one of the huge driving factors behind misery. And this is well this is well known, well documented. And we're seeing this massive differential even between uh, the middle in the top in a way so the 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 lower lower earners and middle earners are quite similar to one another now and it's only the very 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 wealthiest even the top one percent of the top one percent that are raking in all this money they need to something needs to be in place the economy needs fixing so this doesn't happen but until then we need a wealth tax to try and and deal with this and we need to get rid of this stupid narrative about taxpayers money and tax and spend because that is as damaging as anything else because people think it's like you know collecting in like oh you know we've got to fix the roof so we're going to have to save some open they don't understand what a deficit is education on this is incredibly poor um and that suits the narrative and you can see like members of the labor party who's supposed to be the workers party and supposed to know this um and they'll say oh that's just taxpayers money and getting themselves all upset about it like it's not taxpayers money that's not the way the economy works they need to be pushing the correct narrative in order to explain this properly to people so what do you think the tipping point is do you think the fact that there's a narrow narrowing gap between lower earners and sort of middle earners do you think that's going to create change in some way um it's changed to what i think it'll probably it'll probably be something that will change the government and i think at some point um the the government will like the the conservatives are going to pay the price for this whether anything will change in a meaningful way without that kind of change in narrative and without that education that we like that's one of the reasons this channel exists to try to get that other narrative out there because the media aren't explaining these things at all well uh, because they're owned by billionaires why would they mm -hmm. so um I'm not sure whether there is a real tipping point where we're going to see the system change. I think what we might see is a kind of a softer version of what we got because it's very funny that the in politics the centrist position is actually quite economically right wing, well very economically right wing. It's only centrist because it seems to be the accepted norm since the since the 80s. That's not real centrism, that's not balance. Um so Will it? Will we see it shift a little bit? Possibly, but I'm not really sure. Mandelson's involved in the Labour Party at the moment as well, isn't he? He said he's got no problem with people becoming filthy rich, uh, which would, to me, show a fundamental misunderstanding of economics. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. And it's sort of the brazen attitude of uh, the way things, certain policies have been introduced, like the cutting of universal credit, for example. There's been absolutely no framing of it, uh, cushioning uh, that blow in um, sort of beneficial terms. The, it, 
it, it was just uh, rolled out and everyone sort of accepted it. And it was such a cruel thing to do. It was, it was such a penny pinching, small minded thing to do. Um, but it was, it was just, there were, yeah, again, it, there was no marketing of it as a, as a necessary measure. It was just something else that the government does. And the lack of reaction is, that's what I find worrying. Like what, what will it take for you to properly start to demand change? But you're right, it, it's probably gonna be more likely to be incremental, mm. very kind of tweaks, um, changes in government, some form of renationalization of certain services, but mm. yeah, we, we still need to wait and see <laughs> and see if, <laughs> if that happens. We can hope. Well, that's what's driving us. <laughs> I've just realised I should have probably apologised. This is a new place I've just uh, moved in, and I chose possibly one of the worst locations to set up. It's so dark. I've just realised. I'm sorry. Everyone seems to be kind of shiny and bright on their screens, and I'm like looking. I look like I'm in a cave. So apologies for that. And a very dull white, white off-white background. Um, on that note, <laughs> we'll move on to our next story, which has had very little coverage. Uh, and I assume a lot of media outlets are like, well, this is more of the same, so there's no point covering it. It's uh, scores of uh, protesters that have been arrested in Zimbabwe. So uh, there was a um, rally of the opposition party called Citizens Coalition for Change, who are actually former, the former Movement for Democratic Change Alliance, and they're now called Citizens Coalition for Change. And uh, that's ahead of 2023 when there are gonna be uh, general elections. So the current uh, ruling party has detained a number of supporters. So there is very little explanation as to why they're being detained, obviously, in all likelihood, it's because they held an opposition rally but uh it's it's um the charge i don't think they've had explicit charges being raised uh this is worth flagging as well for 20 years because these protests have been ongoing for various reasons cost of living um there's a large contingent of teachers and teachers unions that are demanding better pay as well and uh, rampant corruption in the country. And for the last 20 years, there's been a vigil in London, which I didn't actually know about uh, Zimbabwe, in front of the Zimbabwean embassy. Um, and they gather their um, sort of diaspora, the, the diaspora and other Zimbabweans who've come to the UK um, to vo vocalize their support for the people protesting back home. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm curious to see who, uh, how come the story was brought up because it's it's had so so little coverage. Um, so, yeah, who's uh, who wants to talk about it? <laughs> this this was my fault. Well, not my fault, but it it, it, it because it has so little coverage. Um, I thought it was worthwhile um, worthwhile bringing up because we sometimes like to do international things and. Um, and one of the one of the things that worried me about this story was um, the charges that the, there's an article that's in the Morning Star and it says the charges against those detained are unclear. 
but strict mm-hmm. rules have been imposed on gatherings that include not being allowed to chant slogans, sing political songs, or march in a procession. Now, I'm starting to wonder, and there's there have been some horrific things. This is quite low on the list of, like, there have been people murdered in Zimbabwe. I've met trade unionists from Zimbabwe, teacher trade unionists, and because the teachers run the elections there... Um, they are often the first ones to be targeted. So if there isn't any problems and under Mugabe, if there were problems, they would start executing teachers because they knew that they would be the trusted community members who would run an election in a fair way. So they they, they were saying, well, they're traitors, you know, when, when Mugabe would potentially lose an election to, to remove the veil of democracy, um, you would see that kind of thing happening. And uh, I've met teacher trade unions from there and the stories that they told were horrific. But I just think like, the fact that Zimbabwe now appears to be moving towards a situation where it seems a little bit similar to our police and crime bill, um, where they're, they're trying to remove nuisances rather than deal with actual crimes and saying, oh, well, if you protest, then, you know, we're going to charge you with singing songs and, and chanting. And it just... it. Who would have thought that this kind of thing would be potentially about to be brought in in the UK? And that link between like how terrible things are for people in Zimbabwe and what they want to bring in here, you know, and I'm again, I'm looking for more outrage and uproar from people because their freedoms are about to be taken away by this bill. And luckily, the House of Lords have... Um, taken away some of the worst bits of that bill but still we're in a position where we could be seeing a lot of our freedom to protest taken away from us and looking at somewhere like Zimbabwe that could be the outcome you know I'm not saying it will be but that's the potential you know if the wrong people are in charge a slippery slope Mm. um yeah, yeah Jane sorry Sorry to butt in. I no, posted a link in the chat. Um, it's just that, um, so the Lords have put through amendments that will stop all of those things we've just mentioned, although it's still quite nasty, the legislation. MPs are voting again, I think, next Monday. So um, I've put a link in. Global Justice have got a, like a tool you can use to email your MP and just tell them you want them to vote for the Lords amendments, because um, that's our chance of getting those horrible bits out of this legislation. Do you think... Um there's been enough coverage of this bill because it feels like very few people and people usually in the know are surprised speaking to them have very scant knowledge of the bill haven't either haven't heard of it at all or have only a very vague idea of what it's about so there's been very little uproar jane would you would you make of that oh jane's frozen frozen. everyone else is moving so Oh, she's back. Oh, there you go. She's back. <laughs> Sorry, I froze, I think. Yeah. Did you uh, that's all right. Again, or do you want me to answer it? Yeah, go on, Samantha, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what they've done with the uh, the police crime and sentencing courts bill, whatever they're calling it now, is they've rolled in loads of other laws and rules in with it to make it more palatable so you've got like small groups that have campaigned for something for a long time uh, having it rolled in with that so I think that um, and, and I may be wrong on this but I believe that the 
the, there's going to be an extra crime about um, harassing or intimidating shop workers and that's been rolled in with this so that's something that um, Usdor have been campaigning on for a long time so you get this really difficult political situation where you know yeah you can have what you've been asking for but it's going to be rolled in with all of this other horrific stuff that you really don't like. And for anybody who is working in, you know, the field of real life politics, you do get those, not usually this, you know, extreme, but you do get those choices, you know, you, you can have this, but it's going to include this. Um, so I think that's a really shady <laughs> way of trying to get around people's legitimate concerns about, about this uh, law. Um, but ultimately, I think, uh, unfortunately, the mood of the people who are the people who are just trying to get to work to the three zero hour contract jobs, you know, with no time to think and no time to like look up and see what's going on around them. They just, you know, they don't want people lying down in front of the Amazon depot because it's the only way they're going to be able to get the cough medicine to keep them stood up long enough to go to work. That's the reality of the system we're in. Um, so it, it's sad and it's wrong, but I think people like, yeah, just stop protesting and go to work they genuinely feel that way because they've got to go to work and they're, they're really angry that people um are disrupting what they seem to be necessary things that they've got to do in their life and they don't stop and think about why their life is such a horrendous rat race in the first place yeah yeah i mean that's that's it time is is the biggest luxury there is it means you've got time to know what's going on, to know the reasons why things are going on, so, you know, to cook healthy meals and all, all the things that mean you have a better quality of life. That's ultimately the biggest luxury there is. Uh, Stuart, how about you? What do you think will happen with this bill? Well, I'll try and keep it short because uh, I know we're running out of time. Certainly, Zimbabwe is it like it's a mirror of the stuff that's going on in Britain now. And it's like it's well past, you know, when you read the, the newspapers and it's a bit of allegory. It's like a direct mirror representation of what's going on. And if we were to frame this bill and said, oh, this is going on in a flat in a far flung country. These you know freedoms are being taken away. These awful things are happening. And you read through and it's like, oh, well, this is what you expect. In Africa, and then in, in reality, it's what's happening in Britain. I think people would maybe uh, reflect on it different. They'd, they'd be more conscious of it if they realised that there's there's very little between us and them right now. Yeah. So the, the, the I mean they'll that's the thing, and the chances are they'll start caring once they feel the brunt of uh, of those measures. So people need to feel compelled to protest and then see the effects of that. But it's when do we get to that stage again? Thank you very much, Stuart. So uh, I'm aware that we are, that time is ticking. So uh, we'll move on to our uh, last story, which is about this, the storm, Storm Eunice. And does it reveal a difference in, a, in, in approaches 
uh, and in treatments in uh, between the north and the south of the country. So uh, the last storm there was, regions in the north of the country were left without electricity for, for days, um, if not weeks. So a really long time. Um, and now the south's been hit by Storm Eunice and calling all units, everyone's on it. So does it highlight a stark difference in the way the government responds or has it been fairly even-handed? What do you guys think? Jane, what, what about you? I'm the only, think I'm the only one here in the South. I don't know where you are, Abla. Um, Good old Lewisham, <laughs> South East London. <laughs> ah, so you're South as well. I don't, I've only seen one side of it. I was really, really shocked to hear that there were places that have had no power for days. I mean, I've lived in lots of towns in the South, in um, Kent, um, Surrey, Berkshire, Oxfordshire. I've never seen anything like that. Um, uh, so I don't know. Uh, maybe it's better down here, but it's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe because I've always lived in towns. I don't know if it's more rural areas. I mean, that probably <laughs> illustrates the point is that we've not experienced any electricity cuts. Yeah, I so mean, half an hour is the longest I've had a power cut, you know, in the last 20 years. And, you know, that was once, I think. So, yeah, no, exactly. Um, who lives anywhere in the north of the country or has lived there? Samantha? Oh, yeah. Stuart? Oh, all of, yes. all, most of us. <laughs> yeah, just to, just to give you the the context is um you know the people in my community that I represent had no electricity for seven days, um and there was literally no support. Close to in sort of day five and six, there were uh, hot food trucks that had been bought in by the, the council burger vans, um brought in by the council to um, feed people um, but for those first four days people literally had no help to the point where there wasn't even the community centre had no electricity um, so there was nowhere local that we could provide people with hot food and, and we're talking about we're talking about people um, I, I did I did because I went knocking on doors um, and to give people information about how to access help, the phone numbers um, for the council. And there was, I, I did come across a couple of people who had managed to get generators for their oxygen to actually work. Um, but I also talked to a family who had a, a young baby who was suffering with uh, bronchiolitis um, and they had no way of keeping them warm. You know, that's, that's the reality of the situation and it was heartbreaking. Uh, so obviously, from my point of view, it was very one-sided to the point where when I um, turned on the TV, <laughs> the, the, there was no news coverage of the first sort of four days of the power cuts in, in the northeast for a start. It was only once it neared the week mark that it made it onto the mainstream news. And then this last back end of this week, I turn on the TV and it's literally just a map of the south of England, not even like the usual big map where they've actually tilted it a little bit to make the northeast smaller than it actually is. <laughs> just a picture focused on the southeast and, 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 and fair enough, red weather warnings are scary, but literally no mention of the fact that we were also having 
amber weather warnings up here and terrified because honestly people thought they may be going into another seven day power cut and unfortunately you know who is the bad guy capitalism is the bad guy because all of the infrastructure which is old for power distribution hasn't been invested in for years and years and years so the reason you get the most cut off communities without electricity for seven eight nine days i think some of them were was because they were using ancient overhead power cables and 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 poles that they literally just don't even have spares for anymore because they don't use them anymore so you know again yes it would have been nice to have that investment before it was desperately needed by 200,000 people in the north of England who found themselves without electricity but that's the situation we're in so we're, we're used to it we're used to it whenever there's snow down the south you always get it on the news and we're up here under, under you know, two foot of the stuff for three weeks going, it's all right, we're mm -hmm. fine, we'll carry on. But you get like a couple of snowflakes in London, it's on the BBC News, so we're used to it. But yes, this year it does particularly sting. Yeah, I mean, the, the media coverage is beyond obviously skewed. That's, I, I think everyone would agree on that. Did you feel like you had the support of local authorities there? on a local level, did local governments sort of intervene or try to support you and they were kind of clashing with central government or no, authority figures were on the whole um, just not dealing with, with the reality on the ground? We had an interesting situation where, and I, you know, I'm a member on Durham County Council. I think overall they do a good job of things, but um, it's, um, we had an interesting thing where Durham County Council blamed um, the power uh, network for not telling them that it was an emergency. And apparently because the, count, the council weren't told that it was an emergency, that four days of, of power, no power was just fine. Um, so interestingly enough, in because we've had a few storms now, every storm since the big one, um, there has been kind of things mobilized a lot quicker um, and you know crises is called a lot earlier um, because you've just got to have all the right people around the table to mobilize haven't you um, but un unfortunately again this crisis planning disaster planning is all stuff that has been cut 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 over the years in local authorities with the dwindling budgets because if you only have a crisis every 10 years then do you need to spend loads of money on it every year? Maybe not. Um, but I do think we're probably going to have more of these um, as the planet heats up. So definitely a worthwhile spend now. Yeah, no, fair point. Thank you very much, Sam. <clears throat> Paul and Stuart, what have been your experiences of that? I, I forgot, Paul, I, you told me where you were based and I forgot. Yeah, we're all County Durham. I'm, I'm in a place called Wingate, yes. which is a, it's a little village. Um, on the near the east coast, and Stuart's a little bit more inland than me. We we live in three very different parts of Durham, because like when you come to like a local authority like Durham, Durham's a massive place on the map in reality, and you've got Samantha who's basically out on the Dales. You've got Paulo lives over by the coast, and I live in an area that's like the Vale of Durham. So I'm quite sheltered from it, where Sam. Uh, and her, her wards took the brunt of it and we're not too far away from each other 
but the reality for us, the way that we noticed things were happening was people were scared, worried. There was no reassurance. Uh, certainly you look to the news, don't you, to see if a government's taking action, if, you know, the local authorities taking action. And what we were told was uh, it's not that important. It's not a worry. Uh, we'll get round to it, really. It was week two before they, they decided when it was an emergency, you know, to draft the army in. Why wasn't an emergency before that? Just there was there was, it, there was no reassurance for people. That's a, a lot of what people around my way wanted. We saw trees coming down. We we knew there was going to be damage. People just wanted to be reassured that you know things were going to get sorted. That, that help was there if they needed it. It didn't feel that way. And and yeah. it, it, where oh, I am, thing. it's um. Yeah, where I am, you can just see like the I'm quite in a forested area, and uh, the forest is just decimated. You know, the the I would say decimated is probably the right term because there's about ten percent of the trees are down, um, and this is from the storm that was about a month ago. But there are still still some people in Northwest Durham, I believe, who have still to get their power back on um, a month later. So this is the situation. We had some people sitting there and I think this managed to make LBC because they were saying this is irrelevant. You're making a political point, but their political point. But then they, they did end up agreeing with the caller who said, um, actually, you're right here because yeah. people there sitting there without power a month later. And then the big story in the news is um, is this storm is about to approach the south and and everyone was um, really panicking. I'm not diminishing how scary and dangerous that what that was for people and I hope everyone was okay and there were no injuries and and so on and people are rebuilding quickly but the fact that they don't care about those people and I think it speaks a lot to our political system where we have um we have these the areas that were hit actually have Tory MPs um they they were hit worse and I'm not saying that it was some sort of vengeance from a deity or anything like that but <laughs> but what it was is those people don't see themselves as living there. They see themselves as MPs who live in London who travel to a constituency to do a little bit of work. And if they lived in the constituency, they would immediately be thinking, oh, no, this this my community is, is really struggling. And they would raise the issue and then it would become a national news thing because people in London just really weren't hearing about this. And I know um, Mary Foy, the city of Durham MP, started making a fuss about this uh, very early on. And then days later, a, f a few of the Tory MPs were like, da -da -da, I'll get on my white horse, I'll come to the rescue and I will get this because there is a photo opportunity. And then they, they came along and, sa and said it was absolutely terrible what was happening and pretended they were helping. But they weren't. They were just turning up to some, like the community were helping. And they turned up to a couple of things for a photo opportunity. And I, I do think that's the... that's. The situation we're in now, you know, they care about London, but they've got a constituency up north and it's this like this afterthought almost. And like, you know, and I'm going to trivialise it a bit here, but there's a local MP who is on a date nap and mm -hmm. someone someone I know um, found her on a date nap and um, and she said she lived in London. Um, she didn't say she lived in her constituency. She said she lived in London. And I think that's that's the way they feel, you know, they're not there to represent the community. They're there to be MPs in London. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why it wasn't highlighted to the government at all. Yeah, they're not embedded in the 
their communities. Mm. That's true. I was really surprised when I when I found out how how the system worked. Um, there's a there's a massive disconnect between some of the MPs, some of the constituencies they're meant to represent, and they have so few links to those places. So it make it makes it makes very little sense. Thank you very much for that. I think we're pushing it for time. So we're probably going to go to the second half. We're going to have a little break and then move on to the second half where Samantha will take some of the comments from, from you all out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we have we'll, a jingle for that. We have, a, we have a little song where we can, you can have a little comfort break if you'd like. And then, uh, <laughs> and then we'll, uh, and then we'll be back in a few minutes time for some comments that will be relatively brief I think tonight is that right Samantha but we're all hopefully we're all going to stay for that and Abley you'll be perfectly yeah. welcome and you can be asked for your opinion on these comments as well <laughs> so we'll play we'll play no pass around and then uh, we will see you in a few minutes time absolutely lovely see you hello it's the second half and it's me and I'm back and I don't have COVID anymore yay I'm allowed outside um <laughs> I went to a forest today and I did a three kilometer walk and I also hung off some children's play equipment because that's what you do <laughs> when you haven't been out for a week um so yeah loads of fun really good it's a bit cold out there but not too cold you just gotta wear a coat it's fine okay <laughs> Thank you very much, Abla, for taking us through the first half of the show. Um, it's really, it's a big ask, actually. You know, Paul's got these grand ideas. Oh, we'll have a rotating host. Forgetting that, actually, being the host is, is the most difficult job. <laughs> Out of all no that, training. That, that's why we only ask awesome people, though. Like, you know, it's, we're, we're keeping John's seat warm for him um, whilst also having amazing people on. So, yeah. It wasn't my idea. Oh, was it my idea? It might have been my idea. I forget. We have we <laughs> collective responsibility with socialists, so it's all of our yeah. ideas. Our idea. Yes. Our idea. Socialism. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll, I'll just take a couple of the comments at the end, and then I'll go back to the beginning. Uh, Mark made a comment saying that we need a rule change that all MPs must be from their constituencies, and. It, it is strange, as Abla mentioned in the show, it's such a weird disconnect. Like the whole point you would think of a House of Commons, I mean, it was, it's in the name, isn't it? It was the House for the Commoners where the House of Lords is the other one, you know, but it didn't become that and it has become, you know, we've also almost got sort of two Houses of Lords because they're both filled with excessively privileged people uh, who have manoeuvred themselves into the position to be able to take those so it is a, it's a real tricky thing I've had conversations with people before where they've literally told me to my face like when I, I've said because I believe that MPs should be from their constituencies I've had people say to my face that well well we need the best quality candidates and we shouldn't be uh, picking and choosing uh, hang on Right. Of all the people who live in my constituency, you can't possibly tell me there is not one which is of an appropriate quality to attend Parliament. And I certainly, um, I would definitely challenge the idea that you have to go, I mean, the subtext was Oxford educated, you know, that's the quality of person we want. And I totally disagree, you know, uh, we need 
more uh, morals <laughs> and people with actual uh, actual beliefs rather than just that they've gone to the right school. It's absurd at um, county level as well, like, you know, because our MP, Paul Howell, before he became an MP and for a while during while he was an MP, was a councillor in both Darlington and um, and County Durham because the rules were you can either live in the place or work in the place or own property in the place and be a landlord. And because he had multiple properties in Durham but didn't live here, he was allowed to run as a Durham County Councillor um, as a landlord. So if you've got enough money, just be a landlord, you know, just buy a house there, have a second home. Um, so I would also add on, like, you know, your first home should maybe be somewhere near the constitution. I don't think you need to live, like, say, um, say if if uh, if someone from Mary Foy is my, an example, isn't she? Yeah, if, if someone from my next door con- constituency who was just outside on the border, you know, was was the MP for my constituency and they did a good job, I'd be okay with that. But when you have people who are far removed from it, I think that's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Neil actually says people who've studied politics and done internships in Whitehall should be banned from standing as MP. I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. And anyone one. who wants uh, to do it, I think you should yeah. be forced. Yeah, it should be like jury answer. duty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I don't have to be an I, MP, do I? <laughs> I do think I do think we should have a jury duty type system for parish councils, um, mm. because that's a real real issue. That there, I mean, there are certain places. In the ward that I represent, there are three parish councils and two of those parish councils haven't had an election in the last 12 years, at least, that I've known about because there's just so few people who want to stand. So all the people who put themselves forward are automatically elected because the right number of people nominate themselves. Um, That's no good for democracy and our communities. Oh no, now we've got people saying Paul should be an MP. Shut <laughs> off, we know. That's downgraded. <laughs> I should have been Prime Minister if one a few episodes ago. So. <laughs> Jacqueline says she's not <laughs> sure you, that having MPs come from their constituency would really make a difference. They'll still involve themselves 98% in Westminster politics and not involve themselves in their constituencies. And to that I say, give it a go. <laughs> We've never had it before, you know. I don't think. Uh, I mean, I don't know where. Paul, I don't know where. Paul Howell lived in Darlington, right? Still does, yeah. So I mean, it's not that far away, but he's not from Sedgefield. Deanna Davison's from uh, Sheffield, so no, nowhere near. And our previous Labour MP wasn't from here either. She was from Nottinghamshire. Mm. Um, so and we had Tony yeah, Blair, who was the, who, he did move to. Her. He did move here, didn't he, Tony Blair? But it was, and David yeah, I think Miliband it's a reassurance so. thing. It's not. It's not about you know whether you deserve to to run or that you know you're you're not allowed to run because you're from somewhere else and thus being excluded. I think it's about being. It's given reassurance that you're committed to a community. You know, mm. uh, when you go to the CLP, that you if you. If you're from the area, they're going to have a good understanding that you are really committed to to seeing that place improve. Whereas if you just, you know, I'm having a go because there was an opportunity, uh, I stuck an application in to see what it's like. 
there's no reassurance that there is there. If you've got any sense of community politics, you would want somebody who is attached, who spent time, who did the work when there was no reward. Hmm. That's what you want. Well, that's and, it. You'd have a stake in the place and you'd yeah. form ties with the community. You'd have people you'd, that become friends. So, And also, if you live there yourself, you want to see services improve. So that's why for me, it was kind of a no brainer. I didn't even realize that you could just not live in your constituency. Mm. I always think well, of the balls the as well, the, the balls coopers, um, because Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper were, an MP, were MPs at the same time, weren't they? So if they lived together, yeah. they couldn't possibly have lived in the constituency. I always thought that. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Point. one of them at least one of them had to live in a in another constituency yeah and again i mean neil neil should come on the show uh he says he's simple we need to stop MPs seeing it as a job and a public uh, and see it as a public duty like unfortunately some of our mps see being as an mp as their second job mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is the situation isn't it it's um you know, my MP, Deanna Davison, spends time, more time in London than she does in Bishop Auckland because she's got a Saturday job, or is it a Sunday job, where she uh, reports on GB News. So <laughs> she's got to be in London to be in the TV studio for GB News over the weekend. So she doesn't get a chance to come up back up to Bishop Auckland constituency, which is, is just a shame. The whole point of Parliament is it's designed, they finish early on a Friday and they start late on a Monday so that you can get back to your constituency. And yes, that is a very tough gig, but that's what they've signed up for. Um, and it's really just poor to only see your MP during parliamentary recess, which is what we get here. Um, so yeah, poor, poor, what a shame. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Kerry Wilkes says, if you're in Middlesbrough or anywhere near, Unite Community are holding a demo outside James Cook Hospital at half 11 on Saturday, the 26th of February. And um, this is against health and uh, the health and care, social care bill. And Neil points out the fact that this is part of the national NHS SOS uh, campaign. So please look up their events on their website. There may be an event near you if you're not near Middlesbrough. Uh, and there's also going to be a demo on the cost of living crisis, which somebody called Paul Daly is going to be speaking at uh, on Saturday, the 5th of March at um, in the 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 centre. Is that the centre of Middlesbrough again? Does anybody know? Yeah. yeah. Um, by the uh, Teesside People's Assembly. So if you do have a chance, this might be your last chance to catch a protest before they make it illegal. Go for it. <laughs> Um, do you want to say something about that, Paul? Since you're going to be speaking, I, I'm just going to be uh, just speaking on uh, behalf of um, educators, and uh, I'm quite honoured to be asked. To be honest, it's uh, it's nice it's nice to be asked, but what an awful thing to go and have to speak about. Uh, it's such a worrying time for people, and obviously, like the protests have been. Uh, there have been different levels of attendance and people are saying, well, are, is that because people aren't as angry as they should be or because it hasn't hit yet? 
But I often think it's because people might not even be able to afford to go. You know, like the people who are being affected by this and public transport so bad and so expensive that uh, the the people who are seeing this worst, who should be out protesting, possibly might be choosing between protesting and eating. So um, what a frightening time. So we do have a we do have a moral obligation, I think, to uh, do all we can to try and change things and try to raise, raise awareness because a lot of people will be in that difficult position in a very short amount of time. What about you, Stuart? Do you want to say something on that? Cause it's all part of your bag, part of your deal, isn't it? Technically, it's part of my job, isn't it? I'm, yeah. I'm chair of uh, United Community Teesside in Durham. Uh, you know, it's brilliant that we're getting out and campaigning. Certainly, I'm very proud of my union, who has uh, supported its members for travel uh, and expenses to get out and campaign all over the country. Uh, we've sent activists to London. We've had at Manchester all over. We're, we're very conscious that activism and getting the, the real working class uh Honesty and, uh, you know, the brutal story out there uh, as much as we can, because it needs to be told. And, you know, it's just great that there's, there's people willing to go and, and, and speak on our behalf and, and give us credibility and show the intersectionality of how bad things are. You know, it's touching every aspect of our lives, our workplaces, our home lives. You know, there's, we can't escape this. There's nowhere to run from it. And uh, the people who are most affected have the least amount of voice. Yeah. During the show, when we were talking about this, Abla, you asked a lot sort of what is the tipping point when yeah. people go to a kind of wake up sheeple? <laughs> when is it going to happen that people realise these things affect them? Do you have a, a personal opinion on that? As I said earlier, I think, I mean, I would, I would think that um, the tipping point would be when people that have, I guess, more weight and political power are affected by um, poor living conditions. People that are used to better quality of life suddenly losing that. Um, because if you if you're starting off already at the bottom and you're poor as uh, as you all said it's a vicious cycle you don't have time to protest you don't have again time is a massive luxury you are combining three four jobs you're looking after someone you've got kids you you're struggling to even survive so you don't have that luxury of stepping back and thinking i deserve better living conditions than this i'm going to go out and protest i'm going to push for this or campaign for that once you start having that and you've experienced that level of rel very relative luxury of privilege, once that starts to be taken away from you, then you think um, that then you're more willing to act. Like most revolutions, they've been carried out by, um, or rather the, the people that have most succeeded initiating change is usually a minority, that they're people that had some sort of political power, some sort of weight, some sort of, um, a relative level of um, of influence, uh, so to speak. So, I'm only guessing that that 
that could happen. I mean, you can see with Brexit, for example, um, you know, problems aside and reasons aside for Brexit, it got a lot of fairly privileged people very, very angry because of things that they would lose as well. So, and that's, they were the most vocal um, sort of anti um, remainers or whatever. So that's where people need to kind of feel the, the that they need to be hit. Um, I think that's what, because otherwise there's, they have not enough people have a vested interest in ushering and change. Um, but yeah, I mean, th it's mad. You think so many things are increasingly accepted, like, uh, you know, things like food banks, things like universal credit and cuts to universal credit, which is already poverty uh, benefit, you know, poverty pay. So where's the where's the line? And then I thought, for example, for the the, the most dramatic thing I've seen so far is I, I thought there'd be a line, like a red line um, with healthcare. There's only so much, so there are only so many staff members you can lose. Well, it turns out that now you're risking people basically dying, and that's happening to a certain extent. Some people are just not being given the treatment they need. Um, so, what was <laughs> the end game? When's it? When do enough people start to form a critical mass and uh, start to initiate change? So yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's where I stand. I, I'm hoping it changes. I'm. I mean, personally, for example, my biggest bugbear this year has been maternity services because, um, as some of you might know, I I had a baby about six weeks ago, um, and I both felt really sorry for the midwives and then really angry that we're accepting that state of affairs. And I was relatively lucky, let's be honest, I've not had any major health issues, but I was in a situation where we couldn't guarantee there was a midwife in the end. So, uh, and, and, and that's London and that's a big hospital and that's still better provision than other parts of the country. So you think, what, what are people gonna do? Are they start, gonna start giving birth in the streets? Or, you know, mm -hmm. Again, there's a, there are extremes that I didn't think would reach. You know, and, and before you mentioned it, I was going to mention uh, maternity services because, um, you know, while we have come a long way, um, the way that we treat pregnant women, the way that we take their agency away from them and, you know, oh, I know best, I'm the doctor, you know, the important thing is you leave here with a healthy baby, your baby <laughs> might die if you don't do what I say. The way that we treat uh, pregnant people is, is just barbaric. Um, and there's an example lo locally, I, I hope, that they've got the showers back now, but there was a point where the local uh, maternity unit, which by the way, is 12 miles away from my house. So that's the closest physical place I can go to give birth to a baby, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, they had no showers. There was Legionella found in the in the water system. So for an extended period of time, they did not have the ability for women who had just given birth to have a shower on the maternity ward and they had to go down to a different ward which is like it's like fifth floor fourth floor sort of like it's you like when you've just given birth 
you don't want to be traipsing yourself and your blood and guts like two floors down to an available shower which might be on a ward full of people who are having colonoscopies you know I don't um you know I actually while I was um growing my second child um they closed my local midwife led unit and nobody told me so to the point where he I gave birth to him um it was still on my notes that's where I was going to give birth to him now I did know that the hospital was closed but you know I did actually check kind of the day before it's still closed oh it's still closed that's a shame and literally got there just in time for somebody to catch him um and uh therefore was forced to give birth at home for my third child and uh, now it was a very straightforward luckily uh, I, it was a very straightforward experience and it was a positive one but that was not a choice I made that was a choice that was forced on me because the closest medical place I can give birth is 11 miles away and when my body decides it's giving birth to a baby it's happening now like <laughs> I don't have time to travel <laughs> so it's just such a shame that um I think if, if people have paid attention to the the way that services for uh, pregnant people have been cut you know every, everybody else is sort of it's it's a it's a domino effect this is a warning if you think if they think it's acceptable for a, a pregnant lady who is bleeding to go down three floors to get a shower well in a couple of years time that'll be you having to go to another hospital for a shower you know it's it's the warnings that are there now with the way that we're treating people now it's horrendous um so i'm glad that your experience um was was straightforward but oh i, I spent a lot of time running a non-profit organization where we uh looked after people who were about to give birth and people with children up to five and the amount of post-traumatic stress disorder that we have to deal with in that sector is just unbelievable um because women are literally being traumatized by the process of having to give birth to a child and that's not right <laughs> No, but what's what's really worrying about this is is it's been incre increasingly normalized so that it's kind of forgiven that you give birth and then you get postnatal depression that is not necessarily meant to happen yeah. <laughs> um i i was i had you know a really horrible first birth my when i gave birth to my oldest daughter physically physiologically really straightforward but horrible conditions like i'll spare you the details but trapped in a room with loads of people and a violent bloke who was going to beat his girlfriend up and it was really undignified it was a mess there was no stuff um and and yeah and and these become sort of the stories that you tell that this is what giving birth is like and it shouldn't be accepted and then on a wider scale people start to accept conditions that are really poor as kind of standard and that's the worrying thing um you know and that's why i feel quite strongly about education as well it's um and having experienced a different education system it's the fact that it in a lot of places it's ingrained that you deserve crap education because you are fundamentally a stupid child or lazy or whatever and the clever amongst you they deserve a good education therefore we're going to fund you know a, um, grammar schools and private schools 
Um, and that's why I also have a massive issue with that, uh, academies. It's it selects people very early on in life, and uh, and I've I've had friends tell me, oh, you know, I I wasn't clever, so I went to the local comprehensive, and that's just a horrible kind of frame of mind to start with, because then you feel like you kind of deserve those shitty conditions. Um, so so yeah, it's it's a vicious cycle, and it's 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 a re real systemic issue. Do you, do you ever think that there might be a case of there's no alternative and people just accept, well, this is just the way it is, rather than thinking that they deserve it. They just go, oh, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. Um, yeah. and, and they become that downtrodden. Yeah, if that they don't know anything else. Yeah. I mean, if people know a bit about history, then they can reflect on the fact that, well, at that point in time, there was something we looked like you know universities um free higher education grants things like that and then it gets lost that kind of knowledge gets lost that people don't know about that they don't know that this was a possibility um you know in some years time people uh, people studying to become nurses for example might not know that at one point there were bursaries to help you become a nurse so it becomes absurd and that's um on every level like nationalizing the trains like you know where it's increasingly seen as something that's very extreme absurd far left whatever you label you want to assign to it where before or maybe in another country it's seen as perfectly legit and i always i mean maybe i'm saying this because i've i've experienced a different education mm -hmm. system so i've seen things operate differently um mm -hmm. so so yeah it's about giving people the, that kind of glimpse of what things could be like and i think a key thing as well with your midwives your doctors your teachers you know they're all people who are in it because they're really passionate about helping people and they will help people to their own detriment um so no amount of funding cuts will ever stop the fact that there are fantastic nurses that work really hard and fantastic teachers that work really hard but unfortunately what you get is what we have now where teachers nurses midwives are just getting burnt out and having to leave the profession because what they've been asked to do the level that they need to do their job to be able to go to sleep at night is killing them um and that's you know that's the reality i'm an ex-teacher i just you know I, I couldn't live the life that i wanted to live with the balance of actually having a relationship with my children um you know and and keep my job it wouldn't work i'd you know be working too many hours it wouldn't work um so it's, it's complicated it's difficult so okay let's move on from that uh we've got a couple of minutes left let's uh neil said would johnson have relaxed the restrictions if his job wasn't on the line as he put disabled people's lives on at risk to save himself does he think disabled people are expendable i don't think we need to depend to debate that <laughs> yeah. oh gosh um uh, yeah like kerry said um when we were talking about people isolating because they had covid or not having to isolate anymore because they've got covid um she said 
that's the issue you know individual people are not selfish but we have a selfish society um do you have any thoughts on that jane you haven't said anything in a while how can you do you see that our society makes people selfish i think we're encouraged to be selfish um by the establishment by the media by the government that we've got i think people people are generally good aren't they most people have got quite a bit of good in them but we've got these horrible messages coming down um just i say my, i've got a um, conservative mp and um we don't see very much of her she is local but you know every now and then she'll go down to the beach and point at the p- potential migrants who might be in a dinghy you know dog whistling to the locals who might be tempted to throw stones um but then going back to something Jonathan put in the comments, it's dangerous to suppose I know better and others don't have my ability to understand what is happening. And I know we've already got over this tonight, but I don't mean to be disrespectful to those people, you know, who are being manipulated by things like that, because, you know, their their struggle, they've got their own struggles. And when you really are being ground down into the dirt by life, then you're very easily manipulated and, um it's difficult, you know, sometimes you don't see clearly because you're tired, you're stressed and you're being told other people are taking things they shouldn't have. It's very easy to get dragged into that. Doesn't mean you're a bad person, doesn't mean you're stupid. Just means you're at the sharp end of things and we really need to reach those people, don't we? Really do. Because those people probably don't realise there's a protest going on and if they do, they probably think it's troublemakers, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, people have said it to my face and I'm knocking on their doors at election time and they say, I don't do politics because I work. People say that to me because they work so much that they don't have time to read the leaflets and engage with it. Um, so when I say things like that, it's not that's not a precept. That's what people tell me, um, that it's, it's an extra outlay of time that they don't have in their life. Go on, Paul. I was just gonna say, like, I don't, I don't want to go too boffiny here. So, um, do you know what heuristics are? Right. So basically, like, everyone has these things. It's a, it's a psychological thing, and 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 um, we all have mental shortcuts to help us make make sense of the world. And I was discussing this with Laura in a different context. So it's the same reason why you like. I, I was talking about it because I've like, you know, how I've stopped drinking and things like that, and uh, and. I always drank because I thought, oh, well, you know, that's going to make me feel better. My mental shortcut was drinking's going to make me feel better. It never did. But I always thought, well, you know, I've had a stressful day. Have a drink. Okay, so I've made a mental shortcut to do that. But we all make mental shortcuts. And most of our decisions that we make are mental shortcuts based on our world beliefs. And our world beliefs come from certain things. So if the media says a thousand times that, like, you know, that trickle-down economics is a thing, then no fact in the world is going to allow you to make a quick decision that's going to say trickle-down economics doesn't work. We're bombarded with these little micro microaggressive facts that aren't really facts, you know, so they, these beliefs, they become our belief system and then there's the shortcut. So we've got a job to sort of unprogram ourselves and unprogram society that's been like 40 years of Thatcherism 40 years of Thatcher and Reagan's ideology, which has been proven to be utter, utter nonsense. And yet 
the mainstream media and a lot of people are absolutely brainwashed into thinking that's the only way. There is no alternative. Remember Thatcher famously said, there is no alternative. But there is, there are so many alternatives. There, there are so many, and when you speak to people about the problems, we all identify the same problems, but our mental shortcuts take us to other places. And maybe my mental shortcuts take me to a socialistic outcome. Is it, Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. I, I really like, you know, but that's where I go. I always say, well, actually, that's a problem with capitalism. Maybe I've been programmed in a certain way to do that. That's my mental shortcut. But we all are. And we all need to accept that we've all got these mental shortcuts based upon our belief systems and where our belief system comes from. That's a very important thing, whether it's been hammered into us by someone else or whether this is something that we've come to in a different way. Um, so yeah, yeah, I would say um, they've, that's got a lot to do with how people think and we need to understand that. But you can you can find common ground with people still. You just need to, you know, when you identify the problem that actually there is an alternative because people don't know that there is, altern- that there is a, a viable alternative that's pretty sensible out there. That's a very good point, yeah. Do it. Do you have any thoughts on anything we've discussed recently? I'm soaking it all in and, you know, <laughs> cogs, are t- cogs are turning. It's, cogs. you know, we as a society really need to address the issue that we have with, you know, value and worth. Uh, certainly a lot of the issues uh, and a lot of the reasoning as to why things are so bad could be addressed if we were to discuss social value you know teachers social workers uh litter pickers you know that, that's socially valuable work isn't it and mm-hmm. we, we, need, we need to continue growing that certainly with the kind of future that we're, we're hoping for where we're moving away from industries into a more care focused world where more jobs will be focused on care we need to start you know, given that the value it deserves, we need to be building up the narrative around that, that these are highly valuable jobs, that that is our future. Investing in them massively, uh, creating the opportunities for it. And, you know, we, we, people to see the litter pickers out on a Sunday doing their bit for the community, that's in, you know, that isn't a photo opportunity for an MP to go and, you know, be part of the change. Because it's not, you know, re- it's not really going to change the world that much, but it's still socially valuable. And it's unpaid work that really needs to be, you know, tapped into. All the things that we, we see as responsibilities of community are often things that we should start to see as the responsibilities of society and how we govern it. We, we need to, there's so many imbalances. They could, Eventually, if this government continued down the path it had, you know, we'd have volunteer nurses. Yeah. You know, we'd have, we'd have volunteer doctors and ambulance drivers, and we wouldn't. We it's like, why would we pay for them? These people are so desperate to help injured and dying people. They'll do it for free. But no, we we need to we need to like spin that round on its head and actually move things the other way. Let's create jobs where. You know, litter picking and creating a greener environment is a proper career choice 
you know, where you, you, you don't, you know, you're not in a position where you can commit to huge amounts of work, you know, four hours a week because of, you know, disability, illness, so many like reasons why, but that four hours could be so valuable to improve in the world around us. But because we consider it just the responsibility of a volunteer group that, you know, it's the job of goodwill, it doesn't, it doesn't get done. But yeah, that's enough yeah. of my rant. I was going, I was going off on a, you know, a, a late night tangent. <laughs> Sorry, right. we love to hear and, you speak, Stuart. And on, on that note, it's, it's, it's the measurement of value, you know, like GDP. Have you ever heard that, um, that saying, a man marries his housekeeper and that country's GDP falls? It's like, you know, oh, it's, it's, a, it's an awful thing. It's an awful thing. Like, so they'll, they'll continue doing that work, but now they're unpaid. That's what they're saying. And then the GDP of the country, so the GDP doesn't take into account... It's a terribly, terribly sexist metaphor, yeah. but actually of its time and, 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 and probably quite worryingly accurate in a lot of cases. But um, yeah, GDP doesn't measure any unpaid work, which is actually the most valuable thing. And you've also got like the idea that the work that we do in houses and housework and things like that that you, you might do, it wasn't really meant to be done by two people on full-time work. You know, it, it, we're all facing different pressures and different pressures on our lives that aren't measured. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually I say, and it's like, it, it, I usually say, you know, um, if I look after my kids, that's not creating jobs. But if I pay somebody to look after my kids, I'm creating jobs, adding to the economy. You know, it's just so strange and, 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 and messed up. And unfortunately... Uh, you know, you can't grow forever. And this is part of the problem we have with the way that our society is, is you, you literally just cannot keep expanding your economy forever because there's going to be a human impact to that. Um, and I'm really glad to see some other countries um, looking towards other measurements of success in society rather than GDP, looking at a, a well-being economy, looking at mm -hmm. happiness in the indices. Uh, you know, people talk about GDP and growing and, and the economy growing, but what does that matter if you still don't get paid anymore um, because the growth is happening elsewhere in the economy, in the big banks, for example. Yeah, you know, if your life is not getting better, what is the point of the economy growing? Um, and I think, yeah, we really need, we really need people to to switch on to that. Just just because, it yeah, it's impossible to grow forever. <laughs> like, like, um, somebody's somebody's got to be shortchanged somewhere. Uh, Mark says if mothers were paid for what they do, it would be a salary for, for around fifty thousand pound a year. I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. Um, saying that we, you know, it, it's one of the things people say to me. They say, Samantha, how do you do all of the things that you do? Well, actually, I've got a, a husband that takes on probably more than 50% of, of the housework. That's how I can do what I, I can do. I am able to just leave the house, uh, which a lot of women with children are not able mm -hmm. to do. I don't have to think every day about what we're 
eating fatigue I should probably cook more um but because it's really not fair to let one person do that all the time and he is listening to me um <laughs> but um yeah it, it's it's a huge huge burden and like Paul said never never I would our way of life was never really intended that we would have two people working 40 hours a week and that all of the looking after the children and the housework would just somehow slot in to the this the spare hours when you're meant to be sleeping you know um it were broken and we cannot fix it until people um until we start measuring success in society in a different way yeah um which is a really sombre way to end the show. <laughs> so as a reminder, we are on uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, uh, and whatever podcast app that you have on your phone, search Socialist Think Tank. There is an incredible amount of content on there. Uh, of course, we do this show, Political Unmuted, every Tuesday at nine o'clock. And there's also Socialist Night Live on a Saturday, which is, is at nine o'clock as well, Paul. Yeah, we tend yeah. to go on at nine. Um, and and we, are, we are talking about things that other people don't talk about, but not in a crazy, like, right-wing <laughs> way. <laughs> if you want to come on this show, you can. Uh, we promise not to make everybody be the host. Just contact Paul, and he'll happily slot you on as a guest, and you can talk about these things too. Or if you've got a story you want to tell that you think would help people understand socialism or, or left-wing political ideas uh, more, just... just get in touch because this guy loves to make a podcast uh, and he'd love to listen <laughs> to you talk about the things that you find interesting <laughs> in the sphere of left-wing politics. Is there anything you want to shout out, Paul, before we go? Um, yeah, the Socialist Night Live on Saturday. I can't remember what that is, so um, but it will be it will be something brilliant because Laura's done all the arranging on it. We've got quite a few really good shows lined up. We've got... Um, you know, John Trickett's coming on in a couple of weeks' time uh, to talk about the cost of living crisis again because it's so important to people. Uh, we're going to be looking at, if anyone's got any ideas for um, Origins shows, we're going to be bringing back Origins because I miss them. I miss doing them. So um, we're going to, that's where we ask what socialism is to you. So we've got those. And also Laura's got some social ties lined up as well. So that's going to be... Um, that's going to be really good as well because that's my that's my favourite socialist think tank show actually socialist ties because I just get to watch them uh, or listen to them so yeah that's that's where we are at the moment I'd also like to say thanks to Abla who's been absolutely brilliant and uh, and obviously very popular with the with the viewers as well because um, everyone's saying the please come back and uh, next time you come back you'll be a panelist I'm sure rather than a Rather than a horse, when we get John back, but you'd be amazing. I should post my CV well. in the chat. <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Okay, then we're gonna say goodbye. Everybody, say bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Click the button, Paul. Take the red flag flying there.